Real quick before we begin, in this episode we do discuss sexual assault. If you are a survivor looking for hope, please call the National Sexual Assault Hotline. It's free and totally confidential and available to use 24-7. The number is 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. On with the show. My name is Devin Shepard. I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs. And today we have special guest Tori Potenza joining us on the show. Hello, Tori. Welcome. Hi. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so excited to finally be on your show. So excited. It's been a long time coming. We've been chatting about this for a while. For all of you who don't know, Tori is a writer and film critic. <clears throat> and excuse me, I am sick, so you'll be hearing this all day. I apologize. <laughs> oh, my brain's going to go there, Mutz. Tori is a writer and film critic who writes for Movie John, Certified Forgotten, and Horror Pressed, amongst many other publications. She's also the associate producer for In Search of Darkness, 1990 to 1994. If you haven't caught that already, it is amazing. I didn't know that. You didn't know that? That she was a part <laughs> of it or that it that. existed? That she was a part of it. I didn't know that. Yeah, it w- it's pretty recent. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, that that was so exciting. Tori, and, and we've been following you on Twitter X for a while because your articles, and I think we actually brought up your articles on one of our early episodes as well. It, you give great horror analysis. So we've been a fan and now friends. So we're just like very excited to have you on the show. I know. I remember last year when we met, or I guess two years ago technically and you were just like oh yeah I follow you on Twitter and I love your writing and I was like whoa really <laughs> I recognized you because you had your purple hair in person but also on your Twitter profile I'm like I think I think that's the person I follow on Twitter <laughs> yeah now I'm like regretting dyeing my hair because like the purple was really easy for people to spot me it's gonna be harder now <laughs> I know I'm always terrible with stuff like that like names like remembering like people's like profile pictures versus them in real life like yeah but then I was like oh yeah I do remember you um and then we became Brooklyn Horror friends which was very nice yeah 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 you met David this year yeah I feel like yep. we have a nice little group of Brooklyn Horror friends now we do yeah I think they'll be like some some get-togethers and things in the future so i'm excited for those too yeah me too well sorry i do want to talk more about um what you're working on and what everyone should look forward to but we'll get into that a little more later in the episode today we have a very complicated conversation that i'm excited and i think tori is a perfect guest to talk about this (laughs) david why don't you bring us into the first film today shipwrecked Ed Parker is lucky to be picked up by a passing boat, but his luck is limited as this boat is populated by a corrupt Dr. Montgomery, a drunk captain, a crew of strange deformed people, and a zoo of animals being brought to the island of Dr. Moreau. The captain does not like Parker, and so he abandons the man upon the island. 
Dr. Moreau, played by Charles Lawton, takes Parker in and explains his experiments. He claims that humans are the endpoint for all animal evolution, and he's found a way to speed up that process in his House of Pain. The animal-human hybrids that populate the island are the result. Moreau keeps them in line with a trusty whip and a strict set of laws. Not to run on all fours, not to eat meat, not to spill blood. But Moreau's work isn't finished yet. He has created only one woman, a panther woman named Lota, and he wants to see what will happen if she and Parker breed. Thus, Moreau plots to keep Parker here, wrecking his boat ride home and blaming it on the natives. Back on the mainland, Parker's fiancée Ruth is concerned about his failure to return. She tracks down the freighter and the drunken captain and learns of her lover's whereabouts. Paired with a different, less drunk Captain Donahue, she ventures to the island to bring Parker home. Moreau frighteningly welcomes her. His curiosity about crossbreeding will be easier with a woman, yikes. But for his assistant Montgomery, this is one step too far, and Montgomery betrays Moreau, helping Parker and Ruth escape. Meanwhile, Moreau orders one of the experiments to kill Captain Donahue. When the others find out, they first see it as a betrayal of the law, but as it slowly dawns on them that Moreau himself ordered the killing, the law's hypocrisy is laid bare. Further, they realize that this means Moreau himself is mortal. As such, an uprising ensues, the leader played by Bela Lugosi. The experiments kill Moreau, and the island burns with nothing to show for it. As Parker, Ruth, and Montgomery flee, the island on fire behind them, Parker makes one final chilling command, don't look back. This is The Island of Lost Souls from 1932, directed by Earl C. Kenton, screenplay by Waldemar Young and Philip Wiley, based on The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. Classic H.G. Wells. David, you said in your, your summary, they refer, they being the scientists, refer to these experiments as, quote, natives. This was just one nod to colonialism that I saw throughout the film, including, you know, Dr. Moreau whips his experiments. Um, what what should we call these people for the rest of the, the episode? Yeah, it's weird because they're called natives in the movie, but like they're 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 not like we literally see them being brought here from other places. That, yeah. That's what the boat is in the beginning of the movie. So I don't I don't know. I mean, do, is there like a culturally sensitive thing that we can call them this? I mean, it's they're fictional. <laughs> I don't I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and like calling them just experiments kind of takes away the, I guess, humanity that is there. And yeah, I, I'm not sure if there is a great term. Yeah, yeah, I agree there. I think this is uh, something that we're going to talk about constantly when analyzing this film is how can we properly analyze this film because of what is written on the page and portrayed in the film versus what is reality. For the meantime, I will call them... Maybe the Islanders. 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 Yeah. I, I like that, that. The Islanders. Yeah. Great. <laughs> they do live on the island. Yes. Of lost souls. They do. <laughs> the lost souls. Yeah. yeah. They are the lost souls. <laughs> oh, we should talk about the title later. Okay. We Going should. back to the point, though. Yeah. So obviously, there were, there was a few nods to, to colonialism throughout the film. And I wanted to first ask you both what your takeaway was if you saw this throughout the film as well and what your takeaway was from the theme of colonialism in the island of lost souls 
I mean, it's definitely present, I think, like, throughout, even if it's not directly being explored. Even the beginning when um, Parker, um, he's supposed to be, like, going and getting married to his fiance, and I forget where they are, but it is, like, a colonized space that they're even getting married in and, like, vacationing in. And so I mm. thought about that a lot. Even just, like, uh, you know, Infinity Pool coming out this year and, like, having some similar mm. themes of just, like, vacationing on these, like, colonized places and such. So that was something that really stood out to me. I think it becomes to me much more specifically about like slavery and like plantation life as you get to the island and spend time there but I think that's like also just you know when we talk about like race and uh, some of these issues that's like part of the like timeline as well you know kind of starting with like colonialism and then getting us to the point we're at now when we talk about our second movie so it is definitely a part of that trajectory. Yeah I agree like slavery plantation life and colonialism are are kind of two sides of the same coin really that colonialism is we go there and we enslave them and plantation life is we we bring them here and we enslave them so uh it, it, it's definitely hitting on that he has a whip that's his weapon of choice he's like even just the wardrobe the appearance of dr moreau and that like white suit he just he he looks like an english imperialist colonel sanders oh right no english imperialist <laughs> yes <laughs> Um, yeah, same takeaways. And at one point, I believe it's Moreau calls one of the lost souls pure Polynesian. Yeah, he says that about Loda. Yes, which I thought was really interesting because to like give her a place where she is from, kind of like give her an ethnicity almost in that she is Polynesian, especially like around this time, England was still colonizing Polynesia. Yeah, it should be noted. He also says that specifically because he's trying to throw off Parker. He doesn't want Parker to know oh. that. Uh, so he he is theoretically lying. Um, although if she, I mean, she could also just be from Polynesia. Like obviously there are animals from all over the place. Yeah. So it's like a non-distinct kind of way of saying that she is like this exotic woman, basically. Exotic. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. It takes um, Parker so long to put two and two together. Yeah. Well, does he want he's, to put he's not very bright. together? Yeah, that's, yeah, like, he doesn't want to think of her that way. And when that comes up, he immediately is, like, disgusted with, like, himself. And, you know, that's the one time he gets mad about yeah. all of the horrific things that are happening on the island. Yeah. Yeah, everything keeps happening. He's just being, being like, oh, okay. Oh, you have all these experiments. Okay. Uh, yep. Here's a woman. She's in the room with you now. Oh, okay. How are you? My name is Parker. <laughs> yeah, house of pain, people screaming all the time. Like, like what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> this movie is very racy, not in terms of race, but in terms of like scandalousness. It is pre-code. So as in... It was not as heavily censored as later 30s films. And you can tell that if, if they had waited like two more years, they probably wouldn't have been able to make this movie because there's a lot of stuff in there. There's uh, there's rape uh, or attempted rape. There's interracial relations are not allowed later on in the 30s. It's, it's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. yeah. Could you explain real fast, David, when you describe it as pre-code, just for anyone who might not know what that means? Yeah, I, we, we've dangled doing an entire episode on this, so uh, I won't linger on this too long. But basically, in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, and I think 60s as well, there was the Hayes Code, 
basically it was a very strict code of rules that all movies released in the U.S. had to follow. So it was things like you can't depict homosexuality. Uh, anyone com who commits a crime cannot be allowed to get away with it. They have to be punished at the end of the movie. Either they get killed or they get imprisoned. Things like that. And while this uh, the Hayes Code was technically introduced in 1930, it wasn't really enforced until 1930, and it was self-imposed. It was the film industry themselves adopted this to avoid getting censored by anyone else, so they censored themselves. But because this came out in 1932, that censorship wasn't yet in place, which is why this movie is able to get a lot of these really uncomfortable moments in it it is a very disturbing movie especially for the time period because we're not we're not used to seeing this time period as having such sexually charged yeah films. sexually charged movies <laughs> well and i think it's interesting too and i tried to find this article from like a few years ago when I was in grad school um, about like racial stereotypes with women and yep. especially in like these colonized spaces. And, you know, one of the main ones is the like sexually promiscuous and like seductive like girl, um, which is very clearly what Loda is like representing here. She's like scantily clad and she, you know, is very interested in this man who is then against his will almost like, oh no, like I have a fiance, but like you're so sweet and lovely, um, which is really <laughs> interesting to me. I don't know if I'd call her sexually promiscuous. She, she's never seen a man before aside from Moreau and Montgomery and all the people on the island but they make a point in the movie that for some reason this is the first time that she's seen like a man who she might be attracted to which doesn't really make any sense when you think about it but whatever it, it's <laughs> yeah. it's like uh the Tempest situation and the Tempest when Miranda meets the other people who come in she immediately falls in love with one of them and Prospero's like well yeah of course it's the first person she's met she's not related to or is Caliban. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah, like these like objects of temptation that they've like assigned women in these colonized spaces, this like identity yeah. as. It's yeah. like either that or they're like the elderly caring grandmother figure. It's like one of the two. There's no in between. Right. I mean, even Morose, you know, the whole point of him putting her in a room with Parker is to prove that she's a full or true woman and... To him, that means she needs to have these sexual thoughts or sexual relations in order to become a full woman, which is so interesting. And I think like that idea in its own adds the adds the perception of promiscuity, promiscuity yeah. on the overall storyline, which I think feeds into that that code a little bit. But it's definitely a forced perspective on the film, I believe, because ultimately what Moreau does do is he puts Loda in this position to make a choice, which is really interesting, um, especially around this time. And I would argue, like, uh, obviously there's an argument of like, well, can you be forced in a position to make a choice? But he does give her some sort of free freedom here, which is the point in the quote experiment. Yeah. It's also interesting thinking about the fact that she is like a panther woman. And so yeah. there's that scene where they're sitting together and she kind of like leans into him and it does feel like a very like seductive move. But then you're also like, oh, but that's also like what she, that's like a cat thing of like stretching out and leaning. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. It, it's it's weird because she's it's not just that she is this 
Panther Woman, it's also that she has been very strictly sheltered and prohibited from outside contact. And she's probably only had her human, quote unquote, brain for, uh, they don't give a strict timeline, but not that long, I wouldn't think. So it does kind of raise the question, is she even capable of consenting? Can we even give her that, I don't want to say can we give her that agency, but can we give her, like, is she a fully mature woman who would be capable of that, or would it be bad for for Parker to do anything with her. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons why Parker shouldn't be doing anything with her. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, maybe that is also one of them. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question because, you know, Parker doesn't really try to do anything with her either. So it's like, again, there's no... He horror, kisses her. He, then, yeah, but then... I don't know. It's it's a it's a complicated situation because there's no like coercion in this whole entire thing, right? It's again, she she is given the agency to discover herself. And like mm. if, if we think about her as a uh, younger woman, regardless of like when she was fully developed into into a human, there is kind of this this coming of age element here where she needs to discover her sexuality and so she herself is asking her these questions of Am I attracted to him? What is sex? Is this kiss even sexual? And I think like everyone has that moment in their lives. The question of age is the only concerning part there, I think, with Parker, because we're not quite sure who has the upper hand. Or no, we know who has the upper hand, but there's that power struggle for sure. Yeah. Well, and then like even like how sexual is her, like, I don't know, are her thoughts or motives? Because the other part is that like he's kind of the only companion that she's had that isn't, they say, like Monroe or um, his like assistant who she's terrified of. So and the other Islanders who are all men and shown to be pretty aggressive at times. And so really, there's like no companionship. And so he's also just the first person that she gets to spend time with on her own terms and also probably represents like some safety, maybe potentially escape, like a lot of these other things are going on too. That's true. Yeah. I didn't even think about it like that. Yeah. He's the potential for escape. He's the only safe thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot to debate there. It, it is worth noting that Parker, even if he's really stupid for not putting two and two together, he does not seem to put two and two together. So arguably he wouldn't have reason to doubt these things uh, because he's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> But at least on the part of Dr. Moreau and Montgomery, I mean, like, it's it's not as though she doesn't have sex when she's a panther. Like, panthers can still have sex. So it's not like mm-hmm. the idea of sex is new to her. I guess the idea of sex with a person is new to her. I, I guess the question comes down to, like, does she does she know what sex is? Does she does she understand what this means? Does anyone before they start this discovery and questioning themselves, you know? Yeah. No, like everyone needs to experiment a little bit in order to fully understand themselves and their own relationship with sex. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting thinking too about like, I don't know, biological urges versus like those like emotional ones that might be coming up. Cause also there's just so much that isn't fully explained or really, which I've never read HG Wells' story. I wonder if some of the like scientific elements are explained a little bit more. Cause there's a lot that is kind of left on the table of like, what, 
what has happened to these people? Like, where are they in their development and like, you know, their mental state and things now that they've become humans? I don't know. Yeah. And I'm actually realizing I don't fully understand the scientific process here. So I I think that's intentional. Okay. Because so they are originally animals that then Moreau like creates into humans. But I thought there was some sort of evolution there because he describes it that way in terms of like, originally he made animals into humans and then they've evolutionized from that or yeah, he's like sped up the evolution process is how he describes it at one point like he he says that humans are essentially like the final form of like like all like beings (laughs) want to eventually become human-like in some way which is also just a very interesting quick line that he drops in there that has a lot of different ideas to it but yeah basically he's somehow found a way to speed up this process yeah, it's not cosmetic surgery. It's not gene splicing to create some animal monkey hybrid, which, by the way, we have actually done in real life now. I just found that out. Um, it is. It's he. He doesn't necessarily know what result is going to be. Like we see all the other things. The oh, that's apparently what asparagus is going to become. So he's not steering it it's just this is the way it is so obviously this is not what evolution actually is it's a complete misunderstanding of evolution but in the world of this movie that's what evolution is (laughs) so the the movie confirms that he's right even though in the real world he's not What's also interesting, one of the articles that I looked at said when the film was re-released in 1941, the Hayes office requested that all lines suggesting that Moreau created the beast had to be cut, which essentially Mm. takes out like most of the meaning of the movie, which is (laughs) like fascinating. Yeah, I'm, I'm like so interested in what that cut of the movie would even be like or what would be left. They just ignored it, I take it. <laughs> I don't know if I if they mentioned like what happened after, but I know it was then banned, so maybe that's also why uh they eventually ban it too is cuz they won't make those changes. Yeah, and there definitely is a various amount of edits of this film that are like floating around out there. Yeah. I think we all mm. watched the same version, but mm-hmm. um yeah. I mean there's only so many that still exist, which is also something to be said about where this film was during that time and how they preserved it. So Part of the reason I was asking about the consent is that it stands out to me that Montgomery betrays Moreau over the possible assault of Ruth, and should he have done the same for Lota? Although it sounds like if if you say that Lota is capable of consenting, then that logic checks out. I'm not necessarily convinced she is capable, so for me that stands out. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... And and specifically here talking about the scene when one of the islanders comes into Ruth's room. Doesn't do anything, right? He just is in the room. They chase him off. Yeah. But with, with the assumption that, not the assumption of the scene, the assumption of the characters that chase him off are like, oh, he's going to assault Ruth just by being there in the room. I mean, I think they're, he was sent there to do that by Moreau. That was what Moreau told him to do. Well, there's also the question of, because this is something that also comes up, like when we talk about like the history of colonialism and like how women were portrayed, if they even thought that assault was possible for them, like them actually like not thinking that they had 
autonomy over their bodies in that way. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. this idea that they were promiscuous inherently or sexual inherently. And so that was rape even possible in those situations, because that is a horrifying idea that comes up. You mean with regards to Loda? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, like, was that something they were even thinking about with her? It's different if it's this, you know, well-off white woman, but is it the same for someone who is um, an islander or, you know, a slave? If we're talking about like the racial kind of connotations here. Yeah, and I mean, like, even with that, it's the opposite for the male islander versus the female islander, right? Like, while yeah, if we look at Loda having nothing about her is is sexually charged and everything that happens to her it just happens to her. That's part of like her living, like you were saying, Tori. Then the opposite is for the male islander who him just being in the room and being present in the room. And I understand, David, that Moreau did ask but for him to do that. But the perception of the other people without the knowledge of what Moreau asked for is that, you know, he was just in the room yeah. with, yeah, the attempt to assault um, even though he was just in the room, then that perception is that the the male islander is always sexual or always a sexual threat to any woman or any person. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, like, I mean, it's it's really hard to not see that scene and not think about, like, King Kong and, mm. like, some of these other interpretations of blanking on the name Birth of a Nation, where you see a lot of that, all of these, like, sexually aggressive slaves going after white women. Like, that's another idea that they just have so like there's a lot of intricacies with the sex in in this movie that i think are really interesting and it is a uh trope that we will see throughout the rest of the 20th century uh and the 21st century that's that is that is how certain politicians if and i use the word loosely have categorized uh certain non-white people Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fun. (laughs) Oh, fun. Let's talk about something even more fun. Uh, We touched on this a little bit, but I definitely want to get a little bit deeper. So the code was not the only thing happening during this time. Um, in regards to let's let's say shaping the audience's perception, (laughs) not only the audience's but America's perception of sex and gender and just humanity in general. Um. Eugenics was a huge thing uh, uh-huh. during this time. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I definitely saw this reflected in Island of Lost Souls. Um, David, I'm going to throw it to you because I know you definitely have a point on this, but Tori, please hop in as my fever brain will not be able to properly explain the connection here. Yeah, I did a lot of eugenics research uh, yesterday, which was, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a rabbit hole. So for those who don't know, eugenics... Going back, going back to the 19th century, you have Darwin and the origin of the species, which is the what his paper on that discusses his studies in evolution. It's where he published his theory of evolution. And to be clear, a theory in science is something that has been rigorously proven with evidence a theory is not it's not hypothetical anymore so he released all of this and a lot of people completely misunderstood it and a lot of people said oh this is like survival of the fittest so what you're saying is that because the white people right now in western society is dominating the world we must be the most fit and that's not what darwin said at all but People took it as like, oh, so some races are just more evolved than others. Again, 
not what that theory was. But that led to this idea of eugenics. Oxford Dictionary says eugenics is the study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characteristics regarded as desirable. So what this means in practice is in America, it was a lot of sterilization of people, especially women, but men as well, and especially non-white races, people who are disabled. They use the word feeble-minded a lot. Feeble-minded was this catch-all term for someone who is stupid, and it can mean anything. Like, they would apply us to, oh, this woman is really promiscuous. She's feeble-minded. We'll sterilize her so she can't pass her genes on because promiscuity is probably inherited, which there's no evidence for. Uh, <laughs> there was uh, people who did Poorly in IQ tests would be sterilized. There was a, literally a Supreme Court case, Buck v. Bell in 1927, which went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said that, yes, it's okay to sterilize people based on theories of eugenics. This was also a big inspiration for Hitler, not like we think it was. Like, he literally said, America's use of eugenics was an inspiration to me in this final solution. Uh, so let's just get rid of all these Jews and Romani people and disabled people and gay people and let's, let's just kill them and then they won't be in the gene pool anymore. That's eugenics. So, do we think this is in this movie? <laughs> well, considering that you said uh, women who were quote-unquote feeble-minded or label female-minded because they were promiscuous, I think this goes exactly back to our conversation about Loda. <laughs> being quote promiscuous i will say that like this the book that this film is based on the island of dr moreau came out i think like uh, 10 years or something after no it Darwin's. was 1890 oh i'm not sure uh it regardless of when it came yeah. out it it is known to be a response to darwin's uh studies on, on this specific area it is and it's not it was it, 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 it was at the time it was primarily looked at as discussing animal rights that in England in the 1890s, there was actually there was a big outcry about like dissecting animals for scientific study. And that was what H.G. Wells was directly commenting on that he wanted to write this book about this science that uses animals. But there's also a lot of eugenics in there, definitely. And I think that this movie specifically dials into those. And there's a lot of changes made from the book. Loda was not a character in the book. I don't think Ruth was either. There's also an entire second half of the book after Moreau is defeated, where it's just about the animal society, which completely collapses because they're not capable of running it themselves. Mm. Huh. And that's entirely cut from the film i haven't read the book i've just was researching for the episode so definitely this movie is making a lot of changes and generally i found that a lot of people seem to agree that this movie focuses a lot more on the eugenics than the book did although i think it was definitely present in the book as well and it's worth asking do you guys think that this movie specifically is pro-eugenics? Is it against this? Is it representing it as a way of saying this is bad? Or is it saying, hey, we should we should eugenics? <laughs> <laughs> we should eugenics. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, like going back to Loda and Parker and the idea that Morel wants them to 
breed, I would assume, if he wants them to get together. I assume he wants to see what their uh, little babies would look like and such. And so I feel like Moreau himself probably is not pro-eugenics, I guess, in that connotation. Mm. But yeah, like, what is the point that the movie is trying to make, especially when we just watch the island burn down with all of the islanders, essentially? Uh, Yeah, it just removes them from the gene pool. Yeah, um, yeah. removes them from the gene pool as they themselves are like oh yeah we're abominations and uh, how dare you create us yeah like they don't you think Loda might be able to escape with them but ultimately the people that end up escaping the island are three white people yep Mm -hmm. yeah including one of the ones who was doing this yeah which is (laughs) horrifying yeah I'm I trying think to think of I'm trying to think of like a devil's advocate to it, but I, I agree too much with that viewing of it. I think it's also relevant that as we mentioned earlier, although evolution does not work in the way that the movie describes, the movie is clearly showing us that humanity is the endpoint of evolution, which is a eugenics argument and yeah. is pseudoscience it's debunked uh although at the time that this came out it was really popular science it was it it was extremely popular everyone thought not everyone thought it's a lot of people thought this it it was considered legitimate and people were making laws based around this idea so and continued to be popular (laughs) yeah yeah. uh some say i mean i mean it it's still popular in many circles now uh i I mean i mean the kennedys were pro-eugenics that's not surprising to me. Uh, that's unfortunate, but it's not surprising. There are some people who would argue that uh, some of the genetic engineering that we're doing or like the selecting embryos and whatnot is also along the lines of eugenics or that it is getting dangerously close to it. Uh it's 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 complicated. I I mean I would argue that in that case at least it's not forced, it's the parents' choice, but it's still I, I understand the arguments. <laughs> I, I don't have a strong opinion either way on that one. Yeah. You know what? I'm not going to make a political opinion right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's always yeah. that like dark side of science of like, okay, maybe this isn't the intended purpose of this, but what might people use it for? And you yeah. know who else was pro-eugenics? H.G. Wells. Oh, okay. I was like, mm. what? Wait, really? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I I found this passage from him, uh, and I pulled the quote from it. Uh, I'm just going to read you guys this this passage that H.G. Wells wrote in an essay describing his worldview and trigger warning for racism, anti-Semitism, and uh, implied genocide. How will the new republic treat the inferior races? How will it deal with the black? How will it deal with the yellow man? How will it tackle that alleged termite in the civilized woodwork, the Jew? Certainly not as races at all. All over the world, its roads, its standards, its laws, and its apparatus of control will run. This will make the multiplication of those who fall behind a certain standard of social efficiency unpleasant and difficult. The Jew will probably lose much of his particularism, intermarry with Gentiles, and cease to be a physically distinct element in human affairs in a century or so. But much of his moral tradition will, I hope, never die. And for the rest, those swarms of black and brown and dirty white and yellow people who do not come into the new needs of efficiency. Well, the world is a world, not a charitable institution, and I take it they will have to go. Ew. <laughs> yeah, no. so that's... I was not expecting that. Um, 
I was not expecting that passage to come up in researching that that was it's a lot (laughs) yeah that's not that's not at all what I expected because like (laughs) I wanted so badly for this story to be a commentary on the issues with eugenics yeah and like this conversation is just proving more and more to me that it's not (laughs) that is how I read the movie when I first saw it though like I did initially read it as this is commenting on the horrors of colonialism and showing how terrible this all is and that these uh, uh, other races should be treated as people and that we're fucking it all up. And there are, like, it feels like there are elements of that, especially towards the beginning. Like, I think that whole scene on the boat when you see all of the dogs caged up and everything is so interesting because the terrible sea captain who says things like boatload of filthy animals um he refers to someone as being yeah. like black-handed he like keeps using these different this different terminology that just feels like someone who is like on a slave ship uh transporting slaves um, so there's so much of that that feels like we're clearly talking about this and like making a point that like this is about race and and some of these like, you know, darker parts of it, even like the island looking like a plantation and how Moreau is dressed, like all of that feels like it has some more progressive potentially commentary on some of these issues but maybe it's just that some of that falls by the wayside once we get more into the science of like what is happening on this island and everything i yeah it's very complicated yeah i think it doesn't have to be black and white that wells can Mm. have these horrible disgusting beliefs but he wrote the book he the book isn't him the book is just written by him and this isn't even that this is a movie adapted from the book with some pretty substantial changes like that second half of the book where it's the the people can't sustain society on their own again i haven't read it but what the essay i was reading that talked about it was describing that as something that is extremely problematic that's showing that that the islanders can't run their own society that they need an outside force to colonize them and that maybe Moreau was right to be there. That's not in the movie. That's gone. It still sucks that they all die, but it's it's arguably better than them just being depicted as incompetent feeble-minded yeah and it's interesting too because the movie was made during like jim crow era so there is like a lot of elements of just like american history that seem to be embedded in or uh, not even history like present day at the time that the movie was made and another element that i found really interesting too that really stuck out to me rewatching it this time was moreau like creates this religion for the islanders to Mm. follow in order to control them which uh, is very much what Christianity was used for oftentimes, like with slave populations. And so especially with like the whole, oh, no violence, like we don't kill, we don't hurt, like all of these ideas that he keeps instilling in them to control the population and make sure that they don't have some sort of violent uprising. Yeah, there. This movie is so interesting to talk about. There is a lot going on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. And with that, too, I mean, the creation of the religion, he himself puts himself in the position of God, therefore, in that sense, right? And something I think this movie clearly connects with is 
the Frankenstein genre of monster creation god specifically. I mean, we see it in every horror sci-fi, right? It's I create you and therefore who is the monster and who is the man? Um, that question is very present throughout this film in terms of Moreau. Um, and then also like humans playing God. Should that be seen as I just how should we read that? I think that is the one thing that I see in this film that is a little less bad <laughs> is that yeah. because Moreau is playing God, he is more of a villain that we shouldn't be doing that as much. The Frankenstein comparison, I think, definitely highlights more of a con eugenics argument that, yeah. like, again, in Frankenstein, we sympathize with the monster, that the monster isn't Frankenstein, but really Frankenstein is the monster and his creation is like just some dude who's like what what the fuck why does everyone hate me what did i ever do and it it, it also gets into this fear of science to a large extent which like if we want to talk about the fear of science or uh, even just of science being used poorly then that also gets into maybe we should not eugenics uh, <laughs> which we shouldn't because not like eugenics. what happens right after this movie is fucking hitler uh so that's definitely not eugenics please <laughs> Um, yeah, it's possible that the movie wasn't trying to be critical of eugenics, but wound up incidentally being that sort of in hindsight, mm -hmm. because it like that could be our modern lenses approaching it. And like, we know what happened next. And we we know with a lot more certainty now that this evolution is complete pseudoscience and bullshit. And so it could be the modern lens. I'm not sure. Yeah. And I think something that we should specify too is that we have been jumping around between eugenics, this movie commenting on eugenics and colonialism, um, which we do realize are are not oh, the yeah, same thing. Are, yeah. And the, <laughs> the reason that we are making the, the correlation here, um, just to specify, is because of the basis of both of these are similar, right? In the fact that in both colonialism and eugenics, there is a so foreclaimed... Um, superior race um and yes. that there are inferior that there is an inferior race and that is the connection there and why we are jumping between colonialism and eugenics and trying to iron out the line that we are seeing actually over the course of like not even a hundred years but 80 years between <laughs> when colonialism was really starting to to launch off real hard up to this point in the early 1900s we're, we're more so ironing out that line to show you how colonialism led to eugenics and how this has morphed into basically eugenics being scientific colonialism if one wants to look at it that way yeah it's like these are interconnected ideas that help uh hold up the I don't know, status quo and problematic ideas that permeate and continue to permeate. Another thing that I think is interesting to talk about in this regard is the idea that Moreau's experiments aren't working because, or like they work at first, but it fades off after a while. Because with Lodo, we see that the like animal's coming back and he has that line yeah. that I wrote down, the stubborn beast flesh creeping back. Ugh, yeah. Um, <laughs> So also this idea that, I don't know, there there is some sort of maybe natural reaction to this that is like, no, this isn't what is supposed to happen. And so they are reverting mm. back to that, like their natural, their animal instincts or, or whatever. And I don't really know what the point they're trying to make with that is, but I do think that that idea that they keep going kind of 
going back or de-evolving or, you know, something is happening to Loda at least. And it seems like some of the other Islanders too, many of them look much more, you know, half animal, half human than Loda does, for example. I think they're more failed experiments, right? That he kind of left them onto the island because they're not, he's not done. He is still perfecting his technology. Uh, You can also read this in a racist way as well and say that the movie is basically saying that you can try and assimilate these these, uh, Mm -hmm. islanders, that you can try to assimilate the islanders, you can try to evolve them, but it will never work. They will still be primitive and feeble-minded and they just need a burn. Yeah, like you can't civilize them. Yeah. Exactly. That's kind of how I read it too because I think Moreau calls his, what does he call his ethics? Like rules of a gentleman or something like that. Mm. It's like, this is how you be a better man. Yeah, it's all about just being a, a refined, civilized man. But with the modern lens, you can also see it in a slightly kinder way and say that it's this culture will persist that it, it's yeah, like you can't kill you can't like kill that part of the person that is there as much yeah. as you want to try to civilize them and turn them into one of the like i don't know one of like the people that is up helping to uphold the status quo they're not gonna ever fully buy into that or be a part of that yeah and it's because the white westerner way is not better yeah What's wrong with just being some animals? Let them roam free. Honestly, like <laughs> animals seem to have it figured out better than we <laughs> As we watch Tori's dog just like looking so what? gorgeous and amazing on the couch. A, oh, well, he's oh my like, God, like, that's a dog? I thought that was a blanket. Right <laughs> I thought it was yeah. a blanket. Yeah, like living his best life, stretching <laughs> on the couch, not worried <laughs> about questions of eugenics and colonialism. Just chilling. Good boy. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky. Okay. Well, before we get into our next film, I want to talk to our guests a little bit. We said how we're friends. We said how we met. But Tori, obviously, we've been following you for for a while because you've been an incredible writer in the space. I think your work always offers great analysis, which is why we wanted to bring you on the show in the first place. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah about what you're writing, how you like what you look for in your writing, what you're doing now? Just give us a little a little taste for our audience here. Sure. Um, thank you. I really appreciate that. I feel like my writing gets so like weird and nerdy uh, and just like introspective. So I'm glad that that you like it. Yeah, I mean, I come from like a history background, so not really like a film analysis background, but working on my master's, most of my focus was on like women's history. Um, and specifically, uh, my capstone project was on like the history of women and mental health care in the United States. So um, oh, cool. stuff like forced sterilization, uh, definitely tied into that project. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, worked in museums for a very long time, worked at a historic prison where we often talked about how race was tied to mass incarceration, which, uh, you know, may come up a little bit later as we talk about this next movie, uh, which I think has some of those interesting themes in it. But yeah, I mean, I... um, you know, I get really into like nerdy philosophical stuff. Like I love Carl Jung and like the collective unconscious. And so I get like into some real nerdy philosophical headspaces when I'm talking about a lot of things. But, um, you know, like my first like 
analysis piece was my series on David Cronenberg's work and uh, sex and gender themes in his uh, movies. And so I'm trying to finish up that series hopefully this year um, because I want to start writing a book on David Cronenberg and these different themes in his movies because he is my favorite. He's my guy. Also because he's like lofty and philosophical in a lot of his work. So I'm just kind of drawn to that. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I have a lot of weird ideas. I like forming connections between things, too. So I like doing a lot of comparative analysis. Um, I wrote in October one piece that I wrote I was really excited about was Old Boy as a Frankenstein story and how a lot of it is about creating a monster and also questioning who is the monster um, within this, this story and situation. So yeah, I just, I really love like finding those different connections between ideas and themes. Yeah. I feel like you just pitched our entire show. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I feel like that's why I was like, ooh, I can't wait to to talk to you all because yeah, I just love, love that stuff. (laughs) Yeah. My next question was going to be, oh, what drew you to these two films? But I think you pretty much answered all of that. (laughs) It just makes sense Yeah, like when you... uh, when you sent like the few ideas you had, I was like, oh, these are all like really interesting. But then, you know, thinking about my background and such too, I was like, hopefully I can offer some like historical perspective yeah. um, to some of these. And it's also just like so prevalent now with like everything that's going on um, in the country and the world. So it feels. Um, I wish know, it wasn't. Talking- <laughs> yeah, really wish it wasn't. Wish I could say differently. <laughs> I wish it remained only relevant to the 1930s. Would have been great. <laughs> just like oh remember that time when we were everyone sucked and now it's better <laughs> which actually is how a lot of people still think which is probably it is, yeah. uh, a part of the problem too so i yep. mean that's like the green book philosophy right the movie i like green remember book. these yeah these this one black guy this one white guy solved racism and now everything's fine <laughs> Yeah, they just like drove around the South and we're like, oh, wow, your life is so different than mine, but also so similar. So we're both humans and it's about humanity (laughs) and like we don't see color. Yeah. You know, you're black, but you're basically white. (laughs) That's that's why we get along. Oh, man. That was the thesis of that film. Yeah. Oscar, Oscar winning. Uh, Mahershala Ali deserves his Oscar. He was he was excellent. Yeah. Um. Back back to uh, non realistic horror. <laughs> the horrors. <laughs> the horrors. Um, are you excited about Cronenberg's new film? I saw that they released a picture. Yeah, I'm very excited. Um, I loved Crimes of the Future. I thought it was really great, and um, I really loved writing about that one recently. And so, yeah, I definitely feels like he's like more and more like dealing with uh, mortality, which makes sense as like he's mm. getting older. Um, and his daughter even directed that short film, like The Death of David Cronenberg. So it just oh, yeah. seems. Oh, I thought like he directed that. that. Is- his daughter directed that, that. Yeah, I think it's his daughter directed it. Okay. Or maybe she's in it. I believe you. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, There's something to do with um, it. She has a feature like... coming out, right? She does. Yeah. Um, cool. Totally blanking on the name right now for whatever reason. Um, yeah. I, I um, hope we have a future where both Brandon and what's-her-name Cronenberg are, like, the big names in horror. That would be that would be so cool. And just, like, this family 
of horror directors. Yeah. I know. I, yeah, I love Brandon Cronenberg too. I've been a big fan of all of his features so far. Um, and have like written a little bit about his movies too. I just think there's such an interest. I'd love to have dinner with the Cronenbergs. Like it would be such <laughs> a nerdy, weird time and I would love it. Would you return? Would I would go back there? <laughs> No, oh, or would, return it, would I survive? From, yeah, that. Ah. <laughs> maybe, maybe not, but it would be worth it. What a way to go. You would survive, you would just like survive in a completely different form. Yeah, the, my next stage of evolution. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever Cronenberg monster that, you know, turns into. Yeah. Yeah. See, and, and, pardon me and you don't have to answer this at all but i'm just like i'm picturing a lot of orgasms at that dinner <laughs> just like oh my God, Devin. You're Devin. even even the amount of just like brain gasms i would yeah. have like <laughs> i'm sorry but is there a cronenberg movie where at least three people don't orgasm <laughs> i mean hey more orgasms i think would make everyone happy so i'm thinking dead zone <laughs> David's yeah, that is definitely analyzing. one of his most uh, sexually repressive films. <laughs> uh, uh, you're welcome. I had to bring that into the foray. <laughs> um, ooh, I just yep. slipped out of my chair. I'm a mess. Um, uh, well, what do you have coming up? Do you have anything exciting on the horizon? Sorry, my dog is like snorting behind me for some reason. Aww. Good boy. <laughs> he likes to just like make noises to let me know that he's here. Um yeah, I don't have uh, anything like coming up on the horizon right now. I feel like usually there's like a lull between doing all my end of the year rap stuff and figuring out what's next. Um, but I have a video essay that I've been working on for a little bit that I want to put some more time into that's kind of around like the monstrous feminine and transformation in horror. I want to finish my Cronenberg series. So I just watched Cosmopolis for the first time uh, and had like a really... I actually like that movie, but I also just love a David Cronenberg script because it is so weird and philosophical. So I, I do think that'll lend itself to some really interesting conversation. And then I am planning, I think, on doing one piece that talks about both a history of violence and um, Eastern promises, because oh. I think they have like a lot of interesting similar threads, mostly around like masculinity in those movies. Yeah, I'm excited to, to talk about those. Well, I'm very excited to see the full culmination of all the Cronenberg, Same. Cronenberg films that you've been watching. I've I mean, I've always loved him, but I've gotten deeper and deeper into him over the past few years. So definitely excited to to see what else you write about him for when that comes out and for everything else that Tori is doing um, that is upcoming. Where can people find you and follow you? And then we'll also um, put this in the description for you guys. But Tori. Yeah, um, I'm the Neon Banshee on Twitter slash X, Instagram and Blue Sky if people are still doing that. And then just Tori Potenza on Letterboxd if you want to find me there because, you know, you'll get to see all the weird stuff I'm watching <laughs> and all of these strange lists that it inspires. <laughs> oh, that's so good. We need more people to advertise their Letterboxd, especially on this show, I think. It's important. <laughs> you can find me. I'm DBJ Film. I'm just there. <laughs> I'll pop up. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you, Tori. Let's continue our conversation for today. We have another movie coming up for you guys that is more modern. I'm sure that more of you have seen as it's more available than The Island of Lost Souls, the lost film of the 30s. Um, oh, and I'm introducing us on this one. 
1986, Michael Jackson, Hands Across America, The Lost Boys. At the Santa Cruz Pier, little Adelaide has just separated from her parents to explore the shaman's vision quest, or the Hall of Mirrors. While inside, her reflection seemingly comes to life. What she doesn't know is that she has just uncovered America's dark secret, a series of caves that house the tethered. The tethered look just like us. They do as we do. Their bodies are copies of our own. They were made with hopes to control us, but our souls are different. We are not entirely the same. Present day, Adelaide and her family are looking forward to enjoying time at their summer home, but Adelaide's anxiety rises. She feels her tethered is coming for her. Later that night, Adelaide's fears become reality. Her and her family's copies invade their home, hell-bent on becoming, quote, untethered. Our heroes make a narrow escape, seeking refuge at a friend's home across the lake, their friends having been slaughtered by their own copies. TV news reveals that this is happening all over the United States. The tethered are taking over. Desperate to find a safe haven, the family hops in a car and drives, only to find their tethered have followed. They think alike. We come to the final showdown at Santa Cruz Beach, where it all started. Adelaide's son has been taken below. In pursuit, Adelaide finds the underground tunnels and faces off with her copy. Adelaide defeats her copy, finds her son, and returns to the surface to escape, as the tethered link, hand in hand, across America. This is Us, written and directed by Jordan Peele. Easy. There we go. Two and two. <laughs> we saw this movie together, Devin, in theaters. I remember. Do you remember my reaction coming out of that theater? <laughs> what was your reaction? Did you not like it at first? I didn't. I had okay. issues, but I think we'll get into that. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember us having a long conversation uh, as well as with her friend, uh, Amanda, and we were all just like talking about what it means and what it's a metaphor for and blah, blah, blah. So like it was it was it was, it, it was already destined to become a cadaver dogs episode eventually, even though this was before cadaver dogs existed as a concept in anyone's brain. But to start us off with a quote unquote softball question. <laughs> so a little bit of a plotty one. So Jason is the younger son and his doppelganger is Pluto. And there are some weird moments in the movie where it's not entirely clear, at least to me, who is in control. And I wanted to ask you guys about that. Do you think Pluto is really tethered to Jason or is it the other way around or is it just more complicated in general than any of Tori, as our guest, I'm going to throw it to you first. Do you have an answer? Damn it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This is one that still kind of eludes me. Like, I've seen this, I don't know, like two or three times. And I think I think Pluto and Jason are still a little bit of an enigma to me. Um, there was something that came up that I'm thinking about in relation to them. Is that the child that they talk about, like, her having a C-section? Yeah. Cause I, cause there's that whole scene where like, she's like, oh, you had a C-section and like the baby was ripped from me, um, which I thought was interesting. And in, they were analyzing like it being about trauma and how we deal with trauma and how even a C-section, that's still a form of like bodily trauma that like your body needs to process, even if it feels like it's just this medical thing. And like mentally it doesn't disturb you in some way, like still housed in your body because it is this traumatic experience. And so I'm wondering if that big trauma has something to do with the way that Pluto and Jason interact with each other. Like if that somehow changed their relationship relationship or, or something hmm, that's interesting yeah that is interesting because i think either way they paint both jason and pluto in this light of there is a 
they're different from from other from the rest of the family, right? Like I they yeah. kind of baby Jason in in the above ground family and read uh, Adelaide's tethered copy describes Pluto as kind of like a problem child. I mean, he walks on all fours. They they are very clearly different from the rest of the family. Um, so I think, yeah, that's interesting that you bring up this this trauma because not only is it a trauma for the mother, but also very much for the baby as well, right? Um, when they're born in this quote-unquote unnaturalistic way. Yeah, I, I, that's that's an interesting poll. And then to bring it back to like, yeah, who's controlled by who, there are moments when like the above control the below and the below control the above. And it doesn't always make sense. Mm-hmm. Specifically talking of the moment where they defeat Pluto when Jason realizes I have control over this other being lifts up his hands and walks backwards. And then Pluto does the same and walks backwards into yes. the fire, showing that Pluto has no control whatsoever because if he did, he wouldn't have backed into the fire and, um, killed himself, right? Supposedly. But at no other point in this film do we see them specifically mirroring each other's movements except in the flashback. They do in the closet as well. There's... Uh, uh, I, I, I'm blanking on these specific movements, but when Jason and Pluto are playing in the closet, they seem to be mirroring each other there as well. Like one takes off the mask, the other takes off the mask and so mm. forth. But even in that scene, I felt like it was unclear which one was controlling which. Regardless, something I was looking at is how Jason loves masks and he's always wearing masks. Mm -hmm. And then Pluto literally has a masked face. And that to me almost reads like something where that might have been Pluto originating. That because he has this burned face, he starts wearing this mask at all times. And now Jason likes masks. So you can also bring this back to, we'll get more into the Red Adelaide twist later. But the fact that they switched places shows that even for her, it is flexible which one's controlling which. But it yeah. also means that both Pluto and Jason are half surface half tethered even like the like visualizing like when i think of tethered it feels like it could go either way like one could pull the other and with them it's interesting too because they're both younger and so Mm. i also was thinking about i don't know this idea of like learned behavior and what comes naturally because at the beginning too it also feels like they're the only ones that don't immediately like hate each other i guess or like want to fight each other like they almost have more of a curiosity about each other than the others do which i think is something that is more childlike and kind of dies off as we get older is just those like natural like curious reactions And I'm wondering if as, you know, as the story progresses, maybe Jason takes control because he is like becoming more of an adult and dealing with this like traumatic situation. And so like is growing out of that childlike curiosity into this adult that can make these decisions and and think in this way. It's like the capitalism and classism kind of elements that start becoming part of his behavior. Yeah, I love that read. In terms of like relating Jason's coming of age and becoming an adult um, with classism, capitalism stuff, I mean, let's look at his father figure, right? His father, Gabe, is kind of this epitome of obsessing over possessions, right? Like he is really into his boat. He just wants to have a boat. He complains that like, you know, we have this summer home and we never use it. It seems like he's always talking about 
wanting to one up himself, which is, you know, very much a, a capitalistic personality, I think is or a result of capitalistic personality is this uh, materialistic view of the world and wanting to get ahead. But to connect that back to Jason, you know, coming into this moment of coming into his own, which I love that read of like, this is the moment that him becoming a man uh, is the moment that he takes control of his tethered. I, he's kind of seeing a value in his life when he becomes an adult, right? Now, I, I do question, though, if the value of his life is the same as his father's value, which is more about stuff and status. We get all these moments leading up to the moment that Jason decides to back Pluto into the fire, where he's really looking at his family. There's a, there's a beautiful moment in the car when they're driving, and they hold on Jason looking up at his sister. And for a moment, I was like, is his sister... The tethered, is he like questioning if she's real or not? But I think it's really just Jason figuring out that he loves his family and that, you know, this is this is the value. He's found value in something that he needs to protect. Kind of like, yeah, the man figuring out his uh, his worth, the human figuring out their point in life. I think he does have a closer connection to his mother. So I wonder, I don't know. I feel like he looks up to maybe, I feel like it's weird to say like any of them like look up to the father because the father does seem like this like goofy character who they all kind of like are like, yeah, dad, like whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there is something, there is like such an interesting connection with like him and his mother. So I wonder how, how that kind of affects him. And then also with the end of that movie, what, what he's like thinking and feeling in those uh, last moments, I like always end up wondering, I'm like, what is going through your head right now after everything that you've just experienced? What's last moments, but then after that is also the hands across America shot when you Mm -hmm. see and all the tethered are lined up and holding hands. Yeah. Which, did any of you guys get to do research on the Hands Across America? You know, just that it was a very performative uh, way to try to handle the huge, you know, issues that we have in our country, but not actually handling them in any sort of meaningful, impactful way. Yeah, basically that. (laughs) Yeah. And that, I guess, like, that imagery was really scary to Peel, which was also why he put it in the movie, which I think is interesting. Can you explain what Hands Across America is for our listeners who don't know? Oh, yeah. So um, Hands Across America was a charity campaign to end world hunger that encouraged Americans to join hands on on a day in May 1986. Um, And so it would be this long human chain that extended across the country, symbolizing American pride and optimism, but ultimately didn't actually like do anything, didn't mean anything, kind of like was a was a big failure. I think those are the the things that I really like pulled from the hands across America. I don't know if you have more, Devin. Yeah, they like wanted to raise money specifically for like homelessness and hunger. I think it was like a lot of other stuff too, not really a very focused fundraising campaign. They wanted to raise like something between like 50 and 100, something high, like something crazy high million. Yeah. Um, Ended up raising... I think like 30 million. So no matter what the actual numbers are, did not reach their goal. 15. Thank you. Don't trust my numbers. This is pulling (laughs) out of research that I did weeks ago. But um, yes, ultimately it was a failure. But the whole thing about it was this marketing campaign, right? Was the lead up of this. They spent like nine months to a year on creating this marketing campaign very much like the We Are the World campaign that came right before it. They created songs. They got celebrities involved. Nowhere near as as famous as the ones for We Are the World, but it was such a huge, such a, such a huge pop culture moment that we saw for a full year, which I can see very much why it resonated with the character of of Adelaide um, at that time. You're you're pulling out of the you know Hands Across America meant to be a symbolism of 
what, what did you say specifically? Hope and uh, pride like in American America. Pride. <laughs> yeah. Um, is such an interesting relation to bring that back for this specifically. And if we're looking at it in the world of the tethered, you know, obviously her character has been obsessing over this thing that was burned into her brain for all of 1985 and 86. And then to come up to the surface and be like showing their pride in the same way the tethered's pride in the same way is such a a beautiful image in my opinion and also a terrifying image that you know it's an easy way to see how many of them there are because also kind of highlighting how the tethered were not included in that well actually i kind of wonder if they were do you think like you know they've got to do everything that the people on the surface do so did they do like uh hands across america underground as well like if, i don't if, know i have so many problems with this. ronald reagan in the real world was part of hands across america so did the the tethered ronald reagan join hands with nancy reagan and some oh random God. person as well <laughs> <laughs> The thought of a tethered Reagan. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Oh, that's nightmares. Okay, I need an artist out there to create a tethered Reagan and Nancy Reagan holding hands. I need that image. was interesting too is uh so the article that had some information on hands across america um, was from bfi and it was talking about like peel and like the doppelganger story but it specifically mentions that while like all of this campaigning for hands across america was going on the news cycle was dominated by the challenger disaster that happened um which is also really interesting just thinking about how when we talk about this like darker like underneath the surface kind of what's going on it's like oh yeah we're trying to like show all this positivity and all of these great things going on while also there is like a lot of like things that we're not talking about and not recognizing or trying to like gloss over and i think that's such a big part of this what's the challenger disaster the challenger explosion um with the i'm trying to remember the details of that now uh but it was a oh yeah so it was a space shuttle um that broke apart 73 seconds into its flight killing all seven crew members on board And there were like civilian astronauts on that one, like the the teacher. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why it was really dark because they were like 1980s space race of we can send people out into space who, you know, are not trained astronauts and giving this hope to the world. That was like meant to be the challenger. And then. And spending all of this money to send people to space while not paying attention to all of these terrible things that are going on in our country. Which is like, you know. Oh, so just all of Reagan's administration. Yeah. yeah. yeah People, even much. at the time, criticized <laughs> Reagan and were like, you're joining hands and hands across America, but you're not doing anything about these issues, dude. Yeah. Because who wants to actually do anything to fix these problems? It's so no, much easier to do something performative. Yeah. I think we should bury them underground and feed them rabbits for the rest of their lives. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is so spot on in terms of just like the metaphor of of the above world and the underground as well. To me, I also saw this as a lot of like as a phrase, the have and the have nots, right? It's like uh, clearly we know what the above world has and what the yeah. below world doesn't have. But there is, you know, that that strict line and I think very much feeds into the classism that this film explores a lot between, you know, um, I, again, I am sorry, listeners, my brain is just like so fried from being sick. So thank you for bearing with me. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's really focusing on those these like marginalized populations. One of the articles I found too, even specifically brought up, which I thought was really interesting, the like final fight scene with Adelaide and Red and how it takes place in this empty classroom and brings to mind things like the school to prison pipeline and how a lot of the areas that they're staying in look like juvenile facilities. And so it's a lot of these just yeah. like underlying problems that are going on on in America that are also just like exacerbated by people like Reagan and a lot of the policies that they're putting through. Which also brings us to Jeremiah 1111. So I I looked this up last night and I'm so happy I did. I, I disagree with a lot of what people have said about why it's in the movie. So the passage reads, it's a Bible passage from the book of Jeremiah. And the passage says, therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. So it's basically the bit from Watchmen where Rorschach goes, they'll shout, save us, and I'll whisper no. And a lot of people have tied this to the tethered I've seen some people talk about, that it's that you need to take it on yourself to save yourself. But I don't think that's what it's referencing at all. So I looked into what actually happens in Jeremiah. And basically, he was a prophet who said... Israel has become corrupt and evil. You worship false gods. You're prone to adultery. And you're ignoring the suffering of the poor and the homeless. Oh, so America. Yeah, exactly. Therefore, God is going to seek judgment specifically in the form of an attacking army, Babylon. And then after a long time of him saying, some army is going to come to serve you punishment because God is fed up with you guys and he's not going to help you. And everyone says, ah, you're full of shit. Stop, shut up. And then eventually that does actually happen. And Babylon destroys the Israelites and they're exiled for almost a century until they're able to return. Uh, it should be noted, this does not mean God, that the Babylonians are a force of God, they're not, he's going to judge them as well, and they're not going to last, their violent ways are going to lead to their own undoing. And when you actually look into what Jeremiah is, I'm just like, this is this this is the movie, this is what happens in the movie, and it's relevant because it basically, by, by using that specific quote in the film, by referencing that passage, Peel is placing the blame on the surface dwellers. It is saying, you deserve this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to take that and look at it. So Peel obviously presents two eras within the film, which is the 1980s, which we've been talking about. But a lot of it takes place in the present day or present day then, which is 2019. So we can see that happening at, at both moments almost, which mm -hmm. is really interesting or happening throughout that entire time period. And yes, we're talking about Reagan in the 80s, but also very specifically things that were happening in the late 20 teens. That's so weird to say. Um, post, not post Trump, right after Trump was elected and leading into his second election. Yeah. Yeah. Mid Trump. During Trump. Mid-Trump. There is no post-Trump. We're still mid-Trump. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting how that story of Jeremiah ties to Island of Lost Souls, which I'm just saying in my head to mm. remind myself um, later, because that also resonates a lot with what happens in that story. Very interesting. Yeah, it does. It really does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. One specific quote. It, so, yeah, the daughter in the above world family is so interesting because she is kind of obsessed with, she feels like she knows that there is stuff 
going on in the world. I mean, she specifically says to her parents, oh, I forgot. No one cares about the world ending. Like she very much represents this younger generation of like, we need to save ourselves. We need to do something. And everyone else is like so complicit in this world that they've placed themselves in um, because they're just they're just living their lives and they, they are shutting down and ignoring the signs that are constantly coming up to them. Signs literally being the cardboard sign that reads Jeremiah. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Um, and if you want to tie into that, then that could also maybe even go into some of the, the coincidences, which still doesn't really make sense to me. I don't understand the coincidences thing at all. I, it, it kind of feels like just another thing. But you could see that as like, oh, what are coincidences? They're messages from God. They are God saying like, hey, shit's about to go down and it's your fault. Also, like with the religious themes that you bring up, it also just makes me think of this as some sort of, I don't know, faded event like this. Even if like she has a bad feeling or doesn't want to go and she's almost like compelled to because like maybe it is this like faded thing for them to face off in this way. Gabe's tethered is named Abraham. So that's no. also yeah. a religious reference. Um, Gabriel Pluto... is a religious reference. And oh, Pluto. Yeah, it is. Gabriel is religious. You're right. I'm Jewish. I know this adds like so much more that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, not to linger too long on the religion, though, because also we've we've been talking a lot about the wealth and the privilege of the family, but there is the thing that we've been sort of dodging, and I just want to ask. Obviously, this isn't just a wealthy family, it is a black family. And do we think, because you can read this movie where it's just incidental, where they were all cast as black, but like no one ever references race explicitly throughout the film is race actually a theme or is it just incidental in the casting or if if we if we do a racial reading of this movie is that just because jordan peele directed get out or is it actually part of this um i would say when looking at it through that lens there is definitely a message being said um i'm white so this is like yeah i'm just putting (laughs) just just to clarify (laughs) that um but i think this can be read simply like no, it doesn't it it doesn't have anything to add to it. This is simply a, a a black family as it could be interchanged with anybody else, which I think it could be. But at the same time, there's also this, as I was referring to earlier, anybody who is complicit complicit by just not doing anything and, and being happily living the life that they are and just like ignoring all these terrible things that are happening out there in the world and not readying themselves for an uprising. They're complicit in that. There's something more to be said specifically about uh, black people who are doing that as well as in a way that there is a message of why are you ignoring your like where you are coming from, like your your fellow yeah. man in general. Um, I don't know if that's really like getting across. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah, I mean, one thing for me is that just simply like if the tethered are representing marginalized populations, then like race is definitely a factor in that. But that means like all marginalized populations as well. Um, So there's like a lot of other people included in there. Um, But yeah, like looking at the family, there does seem to be like an interesting aspect with like privilege and class especially even just like Gabe in the car singing this song by like a rap group that is about Mm -hmm. drugs and all of these things and it's just like you know it's one of these like moments where it seems like he is trying to connect to like his um I don't know his roots in some way but that feels 
strange because he is this like affluent privileged man who's always i forget what the college is but he's always wearing like that sweatshirt that has howard. like his college on howard yeah yeah um and you know there's i guess you know again white i'm a white person but um you know there is also like a a guilt that comes with privilege sometimes i think especially when we talk about like a, a marginalized family or individual who has moved upwards more than like you know their ancestors have or maybe other people they now have um so there is there is definitely something to be said about that and just how that plays a role in in their identity whether they think about it or not yeah thank you for saying that a lot more eloquently than myself um (laughs) (laughs) but i well you're sick devin so it's i'm sick my yeah that we'll blame that um (laughs) But you brought up code switching, which we see a Gabe do several times throughout yeah. the mm-hmm. film. And I think the conversations that happen around code switching in terms of like people criticizing people who code switch because it shows like you assimilate differently to the people that you are talking to. And so I think that kind of plays into that compliance that I was talking to earlier, right? Yeah. Which thank you for putting the name on it because I completely forgot the name for code switching. (laughs) (laughs) And we see it like when Gabe is going to confront the Tedder for the first time before he knows what they are. And at first he comes out and he's like, oh, yeah, uh, can I help you? What's going on? And then when he goes out the second time, he code switches into a more, what's the word? A, A stereotypical behavior that is not how he has been characterized up until that point. I'm like, is that is that the right way to well, say and he, that? But he plays into it. It's interesting. He chooses. Yeah. He's like, I want to be threatening right now. And so, what mm-hmm. is a way that I feel like I can play into this stereotype that is yeah. not an accurate stereotype? Also, that- just Winston Duke's acting in that moment is like, <laughs> oh my god, wow, so good. He's fantastic. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, to me, it's it, it's like you get this argument with Night of the Living Dead all the time, where people it's it's really easy to read Night of the Living Dead as a racial commentary, and I think it's racial commentary, and I feel like most literature about nowadays treats it like a, a racial commentary, at least to some extent. But you also see a lot of people arguing like it's really not that it was just a black man was cast his race is never mentioned in the script and all of these same arguments can be applied to us except mm-hmm. i think in us it's even more a part of the script even if it's not directly referenced like like you said he's wearing a howard shirt howard is known as the ivy league school that is i don't know that HBCU. much about it but it's yeah it's it's uh uh heavily black attending university is it exclusively black or just heavily black historically black sure. is hbcu historically black okay yeah yeah, and the fact that they chose to give him a Howard shirt instead of a Harvard shirt or a Yale shirt tells you that it 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 is relevant that he is a black man. This is part of his identity. You even get this entire idea we were saying about how Adelaide senses that something is happening, that she has some connection to the tethered. You can say that, well, the entire family has a connection to the oppressed people because in other situations black people are historically oppressed and it's like an intentional juxtaposition that in the wealthy society no one comments on race anymore so it's like race doesn't exist for the wealthy but it still does for the tether Mm. i guess does that make sense yeah no and 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 interesting because as you're bringing this up too it's making me think of like racial passing Yes. And yeah, I think we can see that specifically in the Red and Adelaide character. I mean, 
So present day Adelaide comes up to the surface world and she quote unquote passes for a surface dweller. Yes. Mm. Um, I don't know if I have much more to say on it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like thinking about Peel too, because it came up in like one of the articles I looked up is that he's mixed race. Um, his father was black, but he like didn't, re- it seems like he didn't really know his father or grew up with him. And his mother was white. Um, and raised him on the Upper West Side. And so, you know, he was in that way, at least like in the family unit, socialized by like a white woman. Um, Although I assume Peel probably never passed as white. So it's, it's interesting to think about how like, even how race played a role in his life. And I assume Hmm. something that was probably forced upon him more than like taught since he had like a white mother, and something he probably like, found out a lot about as he was growing up and being socialized out in the world. And so I don't know, I think that puts a really interesting element on it, too, because some of it, I assume, just comes up like as someone like growing up the way he did, being socialized the way he did, being interested in the things like he's interested in, like some of those things just might incidentally come up into the story that he's writing, too. Um, Yeah. But then, yeah, we're also all reading into it being like, oh, Jordan Peele is the guy that makes horror about racism. So, like, what is he going to do next? And what is he going to talk about? And so I think that also set him up for people to, like, really look into those themes in his stories. Yeah, I, I agree. agree. It's like, is, it, is he not just allowed to make a movie that isn't about race? Yeah. The other thing is, like, it, it, maybe he just wants to make a movie with black characters showing black life and that that can be that and we are definitely reading into it like that could definitely could be, be the way that we see this like we should see more characters wearing a howard university sweatshirt yeah. like we should see more characters doing this and this and this like and this is just portraying black life and this is just something that we don't always have the opportunity to see in cinema and so therefore we see it as unique and therefore are reading into it a little bit more and again we are all white people so we please listeners let us know your thoughts tweet at us uh, message us on instagram whatever let us know how you feel about this to i i hope we have some listeners who are not white what do you think did we do a good job are we completely off base (laughs) please give us feedback this is an open discussion we are it is not closed and shut yeah thank you um that hit a lot of our points that we wanted to discuss on us before we move on to comparisons um tori david was there anything else that you saw in this movie that you wanted to bring up and discuss here um not so much tied to i guess like our um our discussion around some of these social themes um i do think there's like some interesting ideas because i'm interested in like carl jung and like freud and things like that (laughs) like talking about like our darker selves these like Mm. hidden parts of ourselves um i think there are elements of that that are also a part of this story that i think are interesting it might actually lend itself to some discussion when we like get into our comparison of these two yeah i think because the the last thing i see that we kind of touched on but not fully is the relevance of the red adelaide twist and do we blame adelaide but in the comps we have who are the villains and blah 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 so i think that that will tie in there pretty nicely yeah 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 beautifully so david let's ask that question then uh when looking at both of these films and we we touched on this a little bit in in island of the lost souls but in the comparison section who are the villains and why are they portrayed as the villains in these films <laughs> because we do see them because as we've talked about in island of the lost souls dr moreau is a 
complicated villain if we are to see him as the villain. Yes. But they do also portray the Islanders as violent, which is a villainous uh, personality trait. But as we've discussed, we also see the Westerners being possibly pro-eugenic, which is definitely a villainous trait. So there is a lot of questions as we watch these films. Who are we supposed to be rooting for? And are they the good people? Yeah, I think both movies complicate that a little bit. In Island of Lost Souls, like it's pretty clear to me that Moreau is the villain. But even if the Lost Souls are not villains specifically, they are like the source of fear. They are the source of the body horror. They are the other in the movie that we are meant to be disturbed by their very existence. They are unnatural, so to speak, which is kind of true of the tethered as well. I I, I, want to say in, in us, like we're given this kind of stupid explanation at the end of the movie of everything that's going on. And it's talking about how like they were created by scientists and like world war two era and all that stuff. But like, how, how the fuck does anyone know that? Like red tells us this, how does red know? Like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't buy the explanation that she gives. I don't think she knows. I think she's spitting out her ass and is just making stuff up that she assumed, which she even says, I believe like, that's how that whole monologue begins. I'm like, okay, well you believe that, but that doesn't mean it's true. So, yeah, I mean, in us, it's like whoever you decide is the villain or the hero, it's almost like not because their actions are heroic or villainous. It's Mm. just because of like that is the that is the place that they're put into, if that makes sense. Like they are just like that's like happenstance. It's just like they are reacting the way you react like in the situation that is occurring um the tethered want to come up because they have been mistreated and they have been living underground and eating rabbits forever which like fair (laughs) i would also not want to be in that situation and then you know like we're you know we are also put in a position where i think we are supposed to like feel that adelaide and her family are the protagonist and we you know what is happening to them in the world is horrific is that because they are good people that do the right things or just because that is the situation that they are put into that's their circumstance in life yeah protagonist and antagonist is not necessarily synonymous with hero and villain is an important thing here Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i would argue in in us the quote villain we never see and is never named um red says they put us down here and it is very clear that you know someone did they've built escalators they've built a whole system someone feeds them someone still gives them rabbits i assume like someone's gotta know that they're down there otherwise it wouldn't look the way that it does you know ronald reagan it's probably ronald reagan (laughs) 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 he's holding hands and his tethered is also doing that and then he's like here you go tethered take some take some rabbits Uh. And like, you know, I think one of the big questions is too, if Adelaide and Red never switch places, how would they act? Like what Mm, would happen years later in this situation? Would Adelaide, you know, down below make create an army somehow and like revolt still? Very fact that they're able to rise up implies that their tethering is not absolute that they they mm. can't there is flexibility there yeah i always come back to the question of why adelaide and red like why are they the ones after all these years to come out of it and to switch places mm. and uh, to go back to your question tori like yeah i think 
There's something about them that, yes, I do believe that they would be doing this even if there wasn't a split world between them. I mean, looking at present-day Adelaide, let's look at her as a child who was red, who was a tethered. In this moment, she leads her tethered to this terrifying place and they meet and there is a violent act where she what we can assume like grabs or takes over the the child and pushes her or does something with her and puts her into the underground like there's something that oh no no we do get it we do get it she ties her to the bed yeah we do see that so there is this violent inherent violence um or inherent just like villainous trait within what is now the present day adelaide and we see her wrestle with that a little bit, specifically when she needs to fight the tethered. She seems to not want to have to go back to that place of when she was her most violent and hateful self. But I would argue maybe it was also a survival tactic. I don't know. What do you guys think about? Yeah. I mean, also look at it from Red, who used to be Adelaide's point of view, where she was raised mm-hmm. for her first eight or so years. I'm not good at seeing children eight. Uh, and for first however many years before they swapped as someone on the surface, someone with privilege, someone with wealth, someone with a, a, a nice family that fights sometimes, and then gets that ripped away from her. She just wanders into this yeah. place and never comes back. And her family yeah. isn't even looking for her. They think she's still there. And she is stuck in this hellhole and is e- even like losing her voice to some extent because she's not around other people who speak and she doesn't have anyone to talk so or that's why her voice becomes all raspy and whatnot but she's able to convince these others who she believes doesn't have don't have soul like she says i that i think the soul didn't copy over or whatever which again i don't necessarily buy her explanation i think that's why i don't buy her explanation sorry this is getting a little rambly but because i i don't i don't like that would mean that our adelaide doesn't have a soul like i mean i'm a soul agnostic anyway what i don't i don't see a real difference between the surface people and the tethered people. I don't buy her idea that they don't have souls. I think that is her projecting. Because... It's the environment they're in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I think that's her projecting. Adelaide, our Adelaide, says that they don't yet realize that we look like them. She says that at one point, which is such a weird line. Yeah. And when you think yeah. about that line, you're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, it's like hard to, I guess, judge our Adelaide's actions because it's like she was born into just like crushing oppression and cruelty and knew nothing other than that. And then it's like, how can we make a judgment call about her then acting out in a cruel and violent way? Like that is how she has been socialized and she doesn't know anything else. So, like, what do you expect from her in that situation, which is, you know, similar to the other tethered as well. Like, how do you expect them to act differently when they have never experienced anything differently? Yeah, well, it's interesting that you say it because, I mean, comparing it back to what we had discussed in Island of Lost Souls, it then kind of ties into what we were talking about of the, the enslaved people when, you know, colonizers came over and they're like, oh, we'll civilize you. And then they had this idea of like, oh, but can they ever really be civilized? It comes into this fact of, oh, can someone actually really ever change? Or are they always going to revert back to um, how they grew up and what what they were born into? Um, similar of the the islanders reverting back to their animalistic nature. Yeah, both movies are kind of arguing it's systemic. And yeah. 
here's a, a weird thing. So I mentioned briefly earlier how with eugenics, sometimes they would also sterilize people who had low IQs. IQ tests are graded on a scale, and that scale has shifted about 30 points over the course of the past century. So if you were to rate the person who would get 100 100 years ago, uh, if they got a, an average score 100 years ago, then today they would get a 70. It would be considered extremely low IQ, so to speak. So where does this oppression end? That if you keep improving, quote unquote, the race, the, the, the human species, then at what point is it improved enough? Like what, what, what's the end goal here? There is no end goal. And I think this is what us is talking about as well, that in through tethering, what it's saying is that basically whatever privilege you have, whatever status you have, it always comes at the expense of someone else. Whether you realize it or not, that is just part of nature, that your opportunities come at someone else's oppression. Which is actually a point they make in Cosmopolis in a really interesting way. There's oh, like a whole dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. Which is all about how like any sort of progress means that like some people are gonna be left behind. Like any innovation, whatever, there is always gonna be people that are like left in the dust because of this this progress. And that's what we're all about. We love progress so much. Progress fast and never um clean up as you go and make sure that it's um Working for everybody. Don't look back. Don't look back. Oh, my God. There you go. Full circle. Oh. <laughs> so is there any hope? Oh, David. <laughs> oh, this is how we're going to do this. What a great, great question for a Sunday after. Yeah. <laughs> I love to just drive it in. I'm just like, let's, let's, yeah. let's go to the next thing. What's the next thing? <laughs> I mean, I think, I think for me, it's always, it's hard to think that, I don't know. That there's not hope, that there's not, I don't know, yeah. I like need that or else what's the point? <laughs> like, we have we made actual progress, even though there there's still a lot of progress yeah. to make, but progress has happened. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things that are good and there's a lot of beauty in the world and there are a lot of things that make you hopeful. And so, you know, I think that it's hard to because we live in a society where there is especially like talking about these movies and talking about like race and, and things like there is so much systemic oppression and racism just in our lives that we don't even recognize or see. And so I think sometimes it feels like this hopeless situation because we've never seen anything other than what we're living in. We don't know a different way out. You know, we're trying to fix these broken systems without creating something new. Like why work on like unstable foundation when we can just like scrap it and start from something new? We only know like what's what we've seen and what's happened within our, our world and history. So it's hard to see a way out. Well, scrapping it is what happens in both films, that they both have the oppressed rising up and revolting. Yeah, yeah, we do see the same ending. I don't know. It does say a lot, though, that we are talking about two films almost 100 years apart that touch on similar themes. So I'm, yeah, it, it's hard yeah. to like, yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you, Tori. There's so much hope to be had. Um, but it's hard when you are not seeing enough enough progress. Like, yes, some, but not not enough. But I think that's also a question that us tackles is like, okay, well, do you want to live in this kind of fantasy land like the the family in us does, where you can mm. ignore certain things and then mm. you become part part of the problem? Yeah. And I think us does present 
you know, as I said, um, Zora, who is the daughter, does try to be a little more progressive and, and be like, no, like there are issues that we need to fix. So I think there is hope in us that the younger generation could potentially push us to a little more progress. Yeah, I think I think these movies are really interesting bookends. And, you know, at, from like a history background, like, you know, history doesn't live in a vacuum. So like, yep. you know, when we get to us, we're not talking about colonialism anymore, but we are seeing the ripple effects of colonialism. We're seeing the everything that's happened since like, you know, slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, mass incarceration, the war on drugs, the school to prison pipeline. We are seeing this like long history of different iterations of social turmoil and just yeah. racism. Um, and and all of these things and so talking about these movies is so interesting because you do just get to see I don't know how much has changed but also how many things are still like how many of these issues are still prevalent but just in a different way as society progresses do we think the movies are arguing that we need a violent revolution like do we think because both of them have a violent revolution happen is that necessary or is it necessary per the movies uh, a weird connection I also like kind of just occurred to me a little bit of an indirect one is that we said earlier how in the book, The Island of Dr. Moreau, the lost souls are not able to sustain the society themselves, that they ultimately fall apart after thro uh, after overthrowing Moreau. And in Us, because we have that Book of Jeremiah reference, in the Book of Jeremiah, Babylon does not last either. That the Babylonians, their violence ultimately becomes their undoing, and they will be usurped as well, and the Israelites will return. So that's... I mean, That's those weird. also feel like cautionary tales from like one person who we know uh, was pro eugenics and yep. clearly had some racial issues. And yeah, also from a book that has been used as a way to oppress people um, in many ways also. So I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, these are horror movies also. So yeah. yeah. You need to kind of amplify the fear um, a lot in order to hit that mark, right? I mean, I guess you don't need to, but it works well for these films and hits hits what they need it to do. So the violence that we see in these movies is kind of more, I feel, like a metaphor. But no matter what, standing for a big change, a big upheaval and overthrowing of the system that we have created. I mean, the American Revolution, the Civil War, like we historically change does tend to happen through violence. Mm -hmm. So is that just a horror movie thing or is that kind of accurate? I think, I mean, like, yes, but also at the same time, <laughs> hitting, but hitting what Tori's saying in that like it, it hits a problematic nerve when we say, oh, but then this specific group of people are going to uprise against us you know yeah yeah like, yeah we don't want to go yeah. into charles manson race war territory yeah there's just and there's so much nuance in all of these like you know in especially when we talk about history you know like we have this like very specific like idea of like oh yes the civil war was about stopping racism and stopping yeah. slavery mm. and like we fought and we did it it's like okay but no, <laughs> first off that's not even what the civil war was really about um but also like you know there's a lot of other things that happened after that that show us differently and so it's 
you know, all of these things are much more complicated than we want them to be. Yeah. And uh, when we talk about those, these stories, you know, or taught these stories, they oftentimes lack the gray area that's actually present and try to make it much more black and white. Yeah. And I think that's, I, we could go on talking about this for so long. I, I am really enjoying this conversation with you both, but we are hitting up on time. So I want to wrap us out here. We are going to move on to the review section. David, take it away. So now it's time for Rob's favorite part of the show, the bone review section, where we rate each movie on a scale of one to four bones. Starting us off with the Island of Lost Souls is Tori. I feel like uh, it's like a three bone movie. Um, yeah, I. it's a really interesting movie to talk about. And actually, like, uh, I think the conversation that it lended was much more interesting than the experience of actually watching it. Not that it's not an interesting movie. It's just that, you know, like there's there's a lot of like problematic elements that come with it and things that feel kind of dated and so sometimes that is hard to kind of get through and clearly there is some problematic uh, material um, both from the person that wrote the book and embedded like you know in the movie as well but you know I think the fact that it lends itself to conversations like this one makes it something that is pretty important and relevant. I'll go uh, for Island of Lost Souls. I I think a 2.5 bone movie for me. It was really cool to see. It's been a while since I've seen a movie this this old and um, especially one with this big of production value. I mean, it's kind of crazy. It, it did keep my attention. I thought the story was really interesting and the performances were of their time, but worthy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dr. Dr. Moreau definitely got me with his big theatrical stuff. But yeah, I agree with Tori. I think the themes that were brought about do lend to so much more conversation and is what kept me in this film and kept me interested in the film. Um, I do think that it was a little bit ahead of its time, but very much in its time for what it was talking about. I did enjoy, I did enjoy the horror elements of this film a lot. And um, it was very beautiful. I thought the lighting specifically and the cinematography was done very well. The shadows throughout the whole entire film for anyone that wants to go back and watch them are so beautifully done. And the set mm. design is fantastic. And I will end there. 2.5 bones for me. Uh, was this both of your first watch, by the way? Yes. I had seen it before. Okay. So yes for Devin Torrey has seen it before. Cool. I love this movie. I'm I'm also gonna give it three bones. I I mean I'm a really big fan of these old movies. You're talking about the acting. I'm just like, I love the acting in this movie. <laughs> Charles Lawton is like amazing. I he he's a fucking fantastic actor and later directed one great movie, but never did again because he got bad reviews for some reason and was really upset about it. I feel bad for him. Uh, he was an amazing actor. He was in a ton of movies. So is Bela Lugosi. The thing, like, yes, there's definitely elements in this movie that can be read as problematic and probably are. But I also think that you can read. I, I, I think it's not that simple. It's not as simple as it's problematic. There, it, it, It's kind of like one step forward, two steps back. And the thing that ultimately helps it for me is no one cares about Parker. Parker's like the most bland, uninteresting protagonist that you could have. He is a nothing burger of a character. He is strictly audience surrogate and whatever. The one who winds up being not the protagonist, but the hero for me is Bela Lugosi, whose character isn't even named. He's just the sayer of the law. And he is such a fascinating beautiful little character that is, is so we're, we're given only like really two or three scenes with him but he's 
so fascinating to me. And every single line he says is instantly quotable. Uh, I think it was also a revolution in makeup for the time that this is the first time they did those kinds of prosthetics. And that was a big deal. Anyway, this is a great movie. Three Bones. Let's move on to us. Tori, take it away. This is maybe like three and a half bones for me. Um, I I feel like this is a movie that grows on me every time I watch it. And I think it's because it is so, it's much more complicated than Get Out was. Um, Even though I think Get Out is probably still my favorite of his. Like it's, it's so complicated and there are so many different ideas, which is just always something I really gravitate towards when a movie just has so many ideas that means that when I rewatch it I like pull different things from it um, which I think is always something that really is interesting and lends itself to great conversation I think that's another thing about this movie when it first came out I think everyone had really interesting conversations just because it was so different and not what people expected from Jordan Peele I love the performances in this movie I think it looks great and has like very iconic imagery in it that really always sticks with me yeah, I just think it's I think it's really fascinating. And even sometimes when I'm like, I'm not sure I like this movie, I then like get into conversations like this where I talk about it and then I'm like, oh no, like I really do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm going to go in the opposite direction, I think, for this film. (laughs) I'll I'll give it a higher rating than I did before, I think, with any film. Having conversations around it and seeing everything that's really in there and the detail, obviously, in this film is is so well done. So while before I would have given it a lower score, I'm going to go again with 2.5 for this film. I am such a big plot logic person that I just have too many questions and it bothers me too much that it, it... just nothing makes sense. Just nothing makes sense with the logic that is presented in the film. So I can't get over that. I agree. The performances are really wonderful. The structure of this overall film, I get bored. I It's just, it, it doesn't get horror enough early enough. And then it's all about running and running and it feels very repetitive. And then we have a big monologue plot dump and it just kind of feels messy to me, unfortunately. So I don't think it's Jordan Peele's best. I am entertained throughout the entire time. I would I know I just said I get bored but it, it, it the performances keep me in there. Um obviously the writing is amazing and the details are amazing. But yeah, I just I can't be happy about this movie it, just because mostly of the plot. Um so it's 2.5 for me. How about you, David? I'm going in between you guys. I'm going with Three Bones as well. I, I mean, those of us who saw our episode on Get Out, plug, we did an episode on Get Out. Uh, I I gave that one a perfect four bones and I stand by that. Us, the things that I like about it, I really love about it. Like, I I enjoy all the characters. I think it's creepy. I I think that it's... It's weirdly funny a lot of the time, although I remember that being more of a tonal issue than it was on rewatch. On rewatch, I felt like the laughing moments are kind of also scary a lot of the time, which really works. There's, I I mean, the the best joke in the movie is like when Elizabeth Moss is getting murdered and she shouts out, uh, Alexi, Alexa, call the police. And then Alexa goes, uh, now playing, fuck the police. And it's amazing. And before that, it was playing uh, the Beach Boys. So it's like the song of the wealthy white people who are ignoring all the suffering around them just flips to like a song of revolution and uprising in the middle of this murder scene. And I'm like, this is perfect. It's hilarious, but it also like actually fits really well, tonally and thematically. And I love it. The one big change I would make 
is that I would completely remove that entire bullshit explanation that Red gives at the start of the third act. I would just cut that out. And in its place, I think that's where the twist should have been that they switched places. Because for me, I think that that twist is so interesting but you need time to process it before the movie ends I, I and i was curious if i would still have that problem watching it again i did i i think that the the climax would be so much more interesting if you already knew and you, I, I i want to be able to wrestle with some of these questions while i'm watching the film instead of just here's the twist okay it's over credits go home so those those problems which are actual real problems will bring it down to the three for me where it could have been higher but i love the movie all right well david i am looking forward to your re-edit whenever you have time that would be great <laughs> all right well we had a long one today so thank everyone for uh sticking with us we just had so much to say about both of these movies but especially thank you to tori for coming on finally we had you and we got to have an amazing conversation like i knew that we would so once again please tell people where to reach out to you on social yeah thank you so much for having me and it was just nice to chat with you all this is why like i loved meeting you in the first place because we had great conversations about movies um <laughs> but i'm uh, the neon banshee on twitter Instagram and Blue Sky and then Tori Potenza on Letterboxd and you can follow me there. Awesome. Definitely do it, guys. And if you want to find David and I, we are Cadaver Dogs Pod on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok. And we also are now available on YouTube so you can catch all of our old episodes up there. Um, hopefully we'll have some new stuff coming for you soon. Um, some new minisodes that will also be available on YouTube. Not our faces just our voices, but just so you can Thank find God. us easier. You Thank can blame God. me for that. And if you have ideas of any films that you want to see us cover or any guests that you want us to have on the pod, like Tori, please hit us up at cadaverdogspodcast at gmail.com or DM us on any of those socials. Well, thank you for an amazing conversation today. See you, Mutz. Peace. That is the law. Are we not men? 